Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, Hulu, Schneider Electric, Frontify, Hari, and Workato use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. As we wrap up our third season of the Data Chief Podcast, I want to thank you for tuning in, for subscribing, and rating the show. You are the reason that the podcast is now in the top 2% of all podcasts. It's also the reason that we can book so many great guests. Thank you. I've worked in data and analytics for about 30 years now, and what started as backroom reports has finally evolved to strategic importance. Data and analytics is now a boardroom conversation. And as the digital economy has become the economy, technologies like cloud have gone mainstream and power is shifting all over the market. So it's clear, we are in the defining decade of data. Some say it's a winner-take-all economy between the leaders who leverage data well and the laggards who are falling further and further behind. We want you to be one of those leaders, a trailblazer in this new era. Doing so requires adapting and following a new playbook. So we've packaged up six rules for you to follow to dominate this era of data. And you'll hear in this episode the six rules that data chiefs are putting into action to dominate the decade of data. Rule one. Leverage best of breed from the modern data stack. In the past, companies were choose to settle for good enough technology, usually from a single vendor, one-stop shop, because the early days, the technologies were proprietary and closed. The cloud has changed all of that, allowing you to choose best of breed components, whether it's from data ingestion, to storage, to compute, to analytics, to machine learning. And in the decade of data, every iota of innovation matters. Life sciences giant Gilead is one enterprise transitioning from on-premises to cloud, leveraging a best of breed approach. Head of data and analytics, Murali Vrijachalam explains. So to share A statistic, I'll quote from Randy Bean, author of Fail Fast, Learn Faster, only 24% of organizations have created that data-driven culture, and his fact base goes heavily to healthcare, life sciences, and financial services. So it's not a cliche, but it is hard, and I often say that technology and culture are two sides of the same proverbial coin. It's hard to create a data-driven culture on a legacy technology stack that is inflexible and brittle. So you, you both mentioned this transformation 
moving to cloud and then breaking down the silos. Can you share a little bit more about how you're making that happen? Like what what is your modern data stack definition? And of course, thank you for mentioning ThoughtSpot. We're thrilled uh, to have you as a customer, but um, what's that modern data stack look like? Yeah, first I want to acknowledge what you said. Uh, I agree with you that culture transformation is extremely difficult. Uh, there are many, many, many facets to it, including change management, skills, and things like that. But coming back to the second part of the question, modern data stack is one of our uh, adoption uh, approaches to managing data. So it's a set of tools that we have uh, adopted to for data for sorry for data ingestion, uh, data transformation, and data consumption. So our modern data stack, data stack consists of tools to uh, modern data pipelines to ingest data, uh, transform the data and visualize that data. We also have a, a, since we have a lot of data warehouses on-prem and we're starting to adopt a lot of AWS services on the cloud, we have multiple data pipelines to ingest data. So for example, we have data pipelines to ingest data into on-prem Oracle database. We have a different uh, pipeline to ingest data into uh, Redshift as an example. But data, without moving the data, can an end user access the data? So that's where we have adopted Starburst, which is a federated query engine that sits on top of Oracle and Redshift as example of data and many other technologies. So we have a Starburst layer sitting on top. And above that, our strategic tool of choice for self-serve analytics is ThoughtSpot. So to me, a modern data stack is the ETL pipelines that ingest data and transform the data, a federated query engine that can actually provide access to the data sitting in different storage technologies, uh, but also a visualization, a search tool, like ThoughtSpot at the forefront of uh, enabling self-serve analytics. So that's the modern tech stack that we are trying to enable at Gilead. Large enterprises have to manage that transition from on-premises to cloud. But for startups, you get to choose your best-of-breed tech stack from the beginning. That's exactly what John Hughes, Chief Strategy Officer at The Modern Milkman, has done. Tell us a little bit about your modern data stack and some of the decisions why you landed on the technology that you have invested in. Okay, so to do that, I'd have to go back to 2019. So 2019, uh, we've got no money, uh, we've got a database, and we I've got a key skill. My key skill was um, not just spreadsheets, um, Google Sheets in particular, and Google Apps Scripts, which is the is kind of like the old Visual Basic for applications that existed in Excel, uh, but it was for Google. Um, it plugged into a lot of Google APIs, so I could and and also it had if you could if you could manage it enough, you could start to make um, other API calls as well. So I could like load things into Mailchimp, etc. I built way too much dependency on App Scripts. And I was doing a lot of data transformation because Google Apps Scripts had this scheduling tool that I didn't have access to. And I was able to take the really rubbish data that we had in our transactional database and turn it into something more meaningful through a series of transformations that ran on schedules um, and could communicate with me via um, firing me emails if something broke. Right. It's very basic, but we, you know, you had no money. That's how you get around it. Yeah. Um, we raised Series A. And um, we we went, to, the first thing that I did is I took some money and I spent it on Snowflake. Um, you know, like 
Snowflake is the daddy. Um, it's the daddy when it comes to data warehousing, I think, <laughs> you know. Um, or, or they would say they bristle at the word data warehousing now. Yeah. So they would just say the data cloud. Yeah. But was that because you were seeing the momentum in the marketplace or is it skills availability or particular features why you invested in Snowflake? So I went to some people that had run big, big um, BI platform, BI teams, and I said, how did you do it? What did you pick? And if you had your time again, what would you do now? Okay. Um, and they said, we, we pick this, we pick that or whatever. Um, but if we had my time again, I'd pick Snowflake. Okay. <laughs> and I asked like four or five different people across different business verticals. And it like they're pretty much so yeah. I created my own data set effectively, and a hundred percent of it said if I had my time again, I'd pick Snowflake. That was fine. Um, then for like for analysis, um, we had existing talent that was that had used Tableau before, so that kind of became quite a simple decision. Um, so we we went with what we had at the time because it meant it meant we wouldn't necessarily have to hire more people. We could use the people that we already had. Um, and there's always like in a startup like ours, one of the biggest execution risks is, is your hiring. Yes. Yeah. It's always like, you've got, you've, you've got, you've got to get key hires, right. And on top of that, um, we added in another tool, which was retool. Um, now retool is a low code platform. Um, but what essentially we were using it to basically help us with extra data. So a lot of our data was sitting outside of the environment. So we, we were able to quickly build apps in Retool to push more data into the into our model effectively. So that might be supply side data, that might be marketing data, et cetera. And we, use, we used it like that. Okay, so kind of capturing, yeah. Yeah, where we've got to now, is um, we are we've moved over to ThoughtSpot recently, and one of the reasons for that is because we want data to permeate all parts of the business, and we found that the the query structure of, of ThoughtSpot and the the way that it's set up behind the scenes would help us to do that essentially. And we also so we we also have a, I should mention my our ELT tool as well. So the thing that loads stuff into Snowflake as well. Is a tool called Clean, and basically that does a lot of behind-the-scenes busyness. Um, they're based in the UK, in London. Um, great set of guys that have ran big BI firms before and essentially set up a business to solve their own problem. Rule two to dominate the decade of data is to empower everyone with self-service analytics. As an industry, we've done an okay job at empowering data analysts, but we've done a terrible job at empowering business users. That's why the industry average BI adoption rate is only about 25% of people able to ask their own questions of data. Data teams have gone from being bogged down on low value requests, add a sort, add a filter, maybe I need this data instead, tweaking dashboards in an endless game of whisper down the line. That's why the average cost to develop a dashboard is now about $18,000, and you have to wait months before you get anything back. Or as the CDO of Fitch Group, Heidi Lanford, described, a $40,000 PowerPoint deck. Instead of the old model of running dashboard factories to answer business questions, today's leaders 
are empowering everyone to create their own insights with search and AI. Natish Matthew, Global Head of Data Engineering and Governance at Afterpay, shares his experience in driving the company forward with self-service analytics. If you decide that your purpose and your success is is you seeing your, let's say your sales teams or your or finance teams being successful, you will have less conflict because you're focused on, on their success. So ultimately, I think it all comes back from trust, good communication, and then understanding that all of us need to actually play a role in this orchestra, if you will, right? Where everybody, every instrument has a piece, only then if they work harmoniously, you produce a beautiful note. Oh, so I, I like the harmony um, analogy. And trust for sure is important, but I'm going to push back here because there are so many conflicts and the business will say, I'm fed up with IT. They move too slowly. I'm just going to do my own thing and hire my own consultants. I think what we need to understand at that point in time is how can we enable them to hire consultants? What I have done in some of my teams is what we've realized is in many problems, a decentralized model is actually better. IT doesn't need to do everything. In some of the conversations that I've had, as organizations grow also, right, probably uh, we need to reinvent what we do. To some extent, I think if trying to keep on doing what you've always been doing, let's take the case of a centralized data platform, for example, right? It works up till a certain scale. After that, it simply doesn't work well because it's a completely different set of problems. Communication becomes extremely hard. At that point in time, IT should reinvent themselves to be more enablers and then enable actually teams to have their own team members. For example, the concept of an analytical engineer is a good case in point. These are deep questions. I think some of them are related to organizational dynamics, but ultimately, I think if both these teams understand the outcome that we are trying to facilitate, then to answer your question, if somebody wants to actually have uh, independent, let's say, analysts or engineers in their teams, IT should support them and not push back. Well, okay. So now I have to wear the hat of the IT person or the centralized data team. And I'm going to say, what? You want to have true self-service analytics. You're going to have these novices interpreting data, creating their own queries, it will be the Wild West, it will be anarchy. And you even use the word the analytics engineer, which I think is actually the new sexiest job for the decade for the world. But the analytics engineer is even worse because they're creating their own pipelines. So this just sounds like chaos. And we're going to have a breach. Maybe have I laid out all the fears of IT. (laughs) Your fears are warranted. But this is where IT needs to think like, what would Steve Jobs do? If you think about somebody like Steve Jobs, right? Steve Jobs would say, all right, the need of the team is to have an analytics engineer who is empowered to actually build their own pipelines. How would I create a very easy to use data quality framework, which is so effortless that he or she finds it very easy to use it so that you are assured of good quality checks? How would I create a secure ecosystem in which they are put in a wall garden of, if you take an iPhone, right? You can't just do anything on the iPhone, but still you are not obstructed from doing anything that you want within limits. So IT should be building an iPhone ecosystem where different 
different departments can put in their own apps safely and get to do what they want. That requires tremendous creativity, that requires amazing engineering and requires user focus, right? If you take security, security is a, in every company, I strongly believe security is a collective responsibility and you get really good outcomes by providing tools, frameworks, providing guardrails, monitoring, and also culture. You'll probably get more secure data by promoting a really good security and privacy focused culture in addition to technology and not just you need my approval to do stuff. That, that never scales well. Yeah, so my, my solution to that is you, you really need to think about what's the outcome again and think about how can we facilitate that, but in a way that works for both the company, IT, and the business department. Yeah, the walled garden is actually a great analogy. And even that you take the iPhone, because I was going to push back and say, well, it's easy for you. You're in finance. What about healthcare? Then it becomes a life or death situation for some. But your analogy of the walled garden with the iPhone, where there really is tight governance, but then a lot of freedom. That's correct, right? And also, it's a question of clear accountability, right? Who is responsible for this? If IT defines their success as, if I'm able to enable analytics engineers in 20 of my departments and still be secure, my productivity has become 24. Now I am probably the most successful IT team in the world. And I think you've also written about that or spoken about how if you are really successful, your job in a way is becoming smaller. I think it depends on how you define success, right? If you define success as what is the size of my team, then it's a different, I think that's a traditional way some people measure their success. If you define your success as impact, then you would probably say, and it's, it's less headache to manage a team. If you actually are able to empower, like the example that I tell uh, some team members is if WhatsApp or Instagram, when they were acquired by Facebook, like billions of dollars, like 20 people, there is a lot that of an empowered, focused, purpose-driven set of 10 people can do. You probably get more work done with lesser number of people and lesser teams if you architect it well. So a smaller team, but with a supersized impact, more reach. Correct. Rule three is to drive insights from actions. Insights are powerful, but on their own, they have limited value. Instead of hoping that people will act from an insight on a dashboard, it's better to bring that insight into an operational workflow to drive actions at scale. Some might call this decision intelligence. For example, if you have insights about a customer whose orders have shipped late, a dashboard may tell you there's a problem, but you want to go further. You want to proactively message these customers, or maybe you'll look at it and say, all these orders, we're going to switch it from ground transportation to air to ensure you keep that customer loyalty. The modern analytics cloud finally enables this closed loop insight to action. And this is how ServiceNow envisions a decision factory. SVP of data and analytics Vijay Kotu explains how. You mentioned already the concept of it's more than just the analytics, it's the action. 
on that analytics. And you wrote that insight without action has no value in a very good blog. What's the antidote? Looking at the overall data and analytics, it's been here for ages, probably the modern way of looking at it in the last 30 years. It's all about providing information and insights, which is fantastic. We do need that, right? Everyone should have access to information to do their job better. Taking a step further would be closing that loop of, okay, what are you going to do with those insights? And those would be the actions. How are you? So if these insights are helping you make a decision and how do we actually put that decision in action is closing the loop. And that has been the holy grail of analytics rather than stopping at insights, you're closing the loop on helping people do that action here. One of the reasons why I joined ServiceNow is ServiceNow could be that action platform. The workflows are the action. For example, one of our customers need help. The insight would be, yes, this customer needs help in this area and helping our own success teams, sales teams to do a sequence of steps where they can coordinate internally with the team, providing a solution to the customer would be that particular action there. Now we can close the loop of that insights with action. That has been really a game changer for us. Yeah. I mean, and I would say it's been a vision in the analytics industry for decades, but not one that anyone has executed very well on. I have a number of theories why that is. I'd like to hear your theories. Why is it more possible now? First of all, um, we have cloud platforms. Okay, right. Which is easy. There is also another part of it is no code platforms as well. So if you are in analytics world, you have a particular skill set of putting the data together, connecting the data, visualizing the data, and creating AI algo. Those are not probably necessary skill set for you to create some action workflows out of it. But having this no-code platform on ability to create those workflows by anyone would be great. Yeah. So, so let's dive into this a little more. So we need cloud. We need low code. We need somebody that knows the processes. Does an open API framework um, come into play here? Absolutely. Open API provides more signals right. for us to make better insights and decisions there. APIs you can use to activate workflows as well. Absolutely. I think um, and, and API got to go both ways. So we are not only activating a particular workflow, but when I say workflow, it does not always have to be someone monitoring that workflow. It could be a completely automated workflow to close that particular action. It could be an automated decision-making in some cases there. And the API is for us to bring the status back into the system as well. So for example, if I'm owning the account, here's the particular action I have performed. It is useful information to provide to someone else in the account team. Okay, Sally got it covered. So okay. that is great. Yeah. So this particular workflow is in action. We are going to solve this customer issue. Uh, this is the area that customer needs help, but we have acted on that. So that is a record. So API goes both ways there. Okay, great. That was going to be my fourth point. What are you envisioning the role of AI or predictions to play here? So you think it's also in what is the action? So not that it's just strictly a rule-based old school action framework. Absolutely. And I call this as overall decision factory. So if you go back to the purpose of 
analytics, data and analytics is to help us make those decisions, those micro decisions every single day. Let's imagine that they're purchasing a house, right? So what do you need? What are the data points that you need? First of all, you would need some information about the house and your needs. Those are factual data, right? That you can gather. And number two is you're going to do some kind of prediction in terms of, okay, you're going to be in this area for a while. There are schools around this. You're going to make some predictions on the future about that. And the other one is what I call it as heuristic insights, rule of thumb, right? We are making some kind of rule of thumb saying that, yeah, the house prices might actually go up slightly. So that is the rule of thumb that you use that based on common knowledge that we all have, that it might be incorrect it's sometimes, but overall in the longer term, maybe it is right. And yeah. some kind of actuation platform, you're acting on it on the purchasing process and everything. If everything can be done in one platform, that is the data and analytics platform that we can orchestrate this whole thing. That's just an kind of analogy into what we do at work every day. We need factual data. We need predictions. We need some heuristic insights, a way to act on it, enabled by a platform all in one place. I like the term you use, the decision factory. If you say within service now, how pervasive or real is the decision factory and how quickly do you think other large organizations can adopt that? We are in the process. Okay. And uh, the way uh, we got it started is what are the five things that we wanted to do and how we want to do? The five things we want to do are the decisions. What across the company, what are the five areas that we need to improve our decision-making capability? And we chose those five areas. Number two is how are we going to create that decision-making capability? One is to have common, consistent, and connected data, what we call it as knowledge graph internally. Number two is AI, wherever we can predict, what are the high value use cases that we can use for prediction? And number three is research and insights. They consume all this data, provide high level insights into the heuristics that company needs to know. For example, buying this product with that product, it's actually more beneficial for our customers because the engagement goes up. That is essentially the heuristics, the knowledge, the tribal knowledge that we wanted to have and improve on. And that is what uh, there's a separate team focusing on research and insights across the company and our own workflows. How can I combine analytics insight with workflows? And we call it as analytics and workflows as a thing. We started doing that. And the last one is everything on one enterprise data platform. So those are the five, essentially the strategic, how part of the strategy for us to create those decision-making capabilities there. So we chose initial five and that was successful, learnings from it. And now we are trying to improve it in other decision areas. It all started with one area to make it successful and moving on and see how we can scale that. And that is our journey into decision factory. Rule four is build a flexible data foundation. Over the last two decades, companies have learned that building one monolithic data warehouse does not serve the needs of the business anymore. Over the last 10 years, we've also realized that dumping all that raw data into a data lake doesn't work either. We are creating more and more data from a broader range of data sources, 
But our data modeling and storage practices are mired in 20-year-old mindsets and processes. The concept of the data mesh challenges this in a way that frightens some and excites others. One thing we do agree on is that we need a faster, more flexible approach. The pace of business demands this, and the cloud and open APIs enable this. Jamak Dagani, the founder and author of the Data Mesh, highlights this concept. Data Mesh is a decentralized socio-technical approach for managing, accessing, and sharing data for analytical use cases. Um, those analytical use cases can range from training machine learning models in a decentralized way or writing reports and generating reports and incentive, um, insights in a decentralized way. And it's designed for complex and you know, large environments, whether we are sharing and accessing data across an organization between the business units or sharing and accessing data across organizations, across trust boundaries. The objective of the data mesh is creating a model of responsible data sharing that can scale out in step with organizational growth and complexity. As, as organizations become larger, as the touch points with customers and the systems that generates data diversifies as the number of use cases where we want to use that data in machine learning, in analytics increases, it's, it's a model that is designed to really scale and meet this expansion of complexity and uncertainty need. The four tenants that I, that I talk about, the, the very first and I guess the, the most important one, the two first ones are the most important ones in my mind. And the very first one is, you know, owning and sharing data, both from organizational structure and architecture around this idea of business domains. So people in business domains and tech aligned groups across functional teams that are today building applications that are today digitizing and a business experience, a business outcome are now responsible for sharing data for analytical use cases, really removing that centralized responsibility and centralized architecture of a big data team to a decentralized model of kind of domain oriented business aligned tech teams and extending their responsibilities to, to data and analytics. And the second tenet is to share that data as a product, really treat that data as a product. So the data scientists, data analysts, people that want to use that data are treated as first-class users. Um, and that brings itself a you know architectural model around the what what is actually data, what constitutes this product that we're sharing. Is it archives of files or is it more than that? So there's a kind of a deep body of knowledge around kind of what is the data as a product. The third and fourth, I guess, pillars of data mesh are really to make those first two pillars possible and feasible. So the third one is a definition of a self-serve infrastructure that gives autonomy to these cross-functional business-oriented or domain-oriented teams to share and use and discover data. So what is the, you know, the self-serve uh, infrastructure job? And the last one is to be able to govern, to make sure cross-functional concerns of security, privacy, accessibility qualities applied across these data products. There is a model of governance um, that 
relies on federation of, again, responsibility around the governance, as well as automation of policies as code within these data products. Um, that's a kind of a short description of what data mesh is. No, I think that's good. So there's a couple things that I want to parse there. One is that it is decentralized. And so I'm picturing the head of analytics in supply chain or marketing saying, yay, I can do what I want now. And I'm not constrained by that centralized team. And then I picture the centralized team saying, well, wait a minute, what about master data and how do we ensure a single view of the customer? So how do you how do you blend to these two schools of thought? And is, is this a fight that they just have to work through to get to a better place? Yes, that's a fantastic question, Cindy. So the I think we should embrace the autonomy at the same time, equip those autonomous teams with the right engineering and engineering discipline and architecture that addresses all of these concerns that the centralized data team was trying to harness and control and manage, right? So um, I really caution people to take data mesh at the, you know, kind of the superficial layer of, yes, now we have the autonomous teams and can do whatever we want and we can peer-to-peer share data. That leads to absolute chaos and a total mess if we don't build and you know make that layer of self-serve infrastructure to build the engineering pieces in place. So if I give you an analogy, you know, we've gone from monolithic applications with running in in you know in the prior to 2010s monolithic kind of applications running in data centers to a very decentralized microservice oriented cloud application you know running across different organizational boundaries. And yet we're building solutions that are digital solutions that are cohesive, that are consistent experience, that are reliable. And the only way we could do that was the engineering discipline and architectural foundation that, you know, the Kubernetes as the, you know, containerization, virtualization, API management, API documentation, all of that Mm -hmm. was put in place. Zero trust architectures, you know, the models of security and privacy. There is a body of just technological kind of advances that made that possible. The same, I think, needs to happen for data mesh to address the consistent view of the customer across these or interoperability, interconnection of customer across different domains to address uh, the privacy of the customer information as it changes hand between the domains. So I, I, I think that's how we, you know, address the concern of data teams. What they were trying to achieve with, with a system of control uh, under one body, right, um, under one team needs to achieve, needs to be achieved by machines and, you know, kind of technology in a distributed fashion. Rule five, use third-party data for a 360-degree view of your business. Internal data is just one piece of your data strategy. For better leading indicators, especially in a volatile economy, you want third-party data. In this decade, third-party data is both richer and easier to consume. There are new data sources like human mobility or Amazon shopping trends. And with modern cloud data sharing approaches, it's the end of FTP and those brittle pipelines. 
Deeksha Singh, Director of Data and Analytics at global consumer brand Unilever, shares how they use third-party data to make great products like Ben & Jerry's ice cream and in a sustainable way. But if you talk about Unilever, and I think it extends to a lot of other FMCG organizations as well, the breadth of data that lies in the organization is massive. And we as part of data and analytics team is constantly working to make our lives simpler in terms of how do we make sense of it in a very simplified, easy way. Right from the point where we procure our raw materials and even the ingredients of the raw materials to the way we manufacture, then distribute to retail points. And finally, when the product is in the hands of consumers at each and every touch point of the value chain, there is data generated. And then top of it, there is industry data, there is media, there is pricing, social network. So structured, unstructured data in all forms. So yeah, there is huge amount of data. And this is the data we also engage with in and out as part of the data and analytics organization as part of an FMCG organization. That's a range of data and interesting that you emphasize the part about supply chain and the manufacturing of it, of the different products. I understand that Unilever also measures and cares very much about the sustainability side. So how much packaging and plastics go into that. Can you elaborate on that type of data and how you're actually measuring it? So yes, sustainability is in the core, the heart of everything we do. Uh, Unilever's purpose is about making sustainable living commonplace. And yes, a large amount of data is being used in terms of how do we enable reduction in carbon, reduction in plastic, deforestation and its impact and even sustainable sourcing. So if I were to pick an example, a case in point of sustainable sourcing, we've partnered with a third party who provides us with the cloud services. That along with the satellite data that is available in terms of monitoring the impact of these ingredients that are being sourced from different locations across the globe, coupled with the power of AI. When we mix all of this, we get very rich geospatial data, which we are using in a lot of decision-making when it comes to where are we sourcing from. So for example, if these ingredients are being sourced from a location which is impacted by deforestation and has a future impact of deforestation, we can take quick decision of not sourcing from those locations, from those places where there is a deforestation impact. And I think that's the power of data. And that's how we are empowering ourselves with the data to make these business decisions fairly fast, helping us to lead towards a healthier planet. Finally, rule six is about creating a user experience for data. It's time to rethink all those business applications you're building. They should no longer just act as a systems of record to capture data. They should be apps that include data insights as part of the app. Think about Fitbit. It doesn't just count your steps and read your heart rate. It gives you an overview of your health, and it recommends actions that you should take to keep moving, to get better sleep, improve your overall well-being. That's what your employees and customers want to see in your business applications. Grant Parsimian, VP of Data Engineering and Analytics at OpenTable, gives us a taste of what these improved in-app data experiences look like in the real world and how they apply to Rule 6. 
Now, Grant, I think many people are familiar with OpenTable from the consumer side, but tell us a little bit also how data is used on the restaurant side or on the business side. Sure. So as you said, OpenTable is a two-sided business. So obviously consumers know the product, the app, and the, and the website. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that OpenTable has a software that runs at the restaurant. So at the restaurant, um, the restaurateurs use our software to manage their floor plans, um, manage their seats, um, reservations, and all their essentially all their business. So they use our product to look at how many people they can bring in, how many for walk-ins, for phone reservations. And in terms of how they use data, um, OpenTable has been, you know, part of, the, part of my goal has always been to provide insights to the restaurant so they can run their businesses more efficiently. What does this really mean? It means, you know, we provide benchmarking data for the restaurants, how they're doing in relation to their neighbors or the set of restaurants, um, how they're doing in terms of optimizing the demand, the demand being the, uh, the consumers, uh, meaning how many people they can bring in at what times and how many shifts they should do, uh, what should be the optimal turn times, what should be, you know, how they should combine tables. So a lot of data, there's a lot of data that goes into optimization. There's also data in terms of um, knowing how to forecast what they should expect in certain days. There's you know, a, lot of, a lot of information that's given to the restaurant so they can just become um, you know, a lot more efficient and take full advantage of the data. So Great. And in, in a pandemic in 2020, the fact that you have this data across the industry has been game changing. In fact, releasing right. a one of a kind state of the industry and using this to better inform and lobby for safer openings. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So when the lockdowns began last year, we knew you know this was affecting restaurants. It was devastating to the restaurants. Yes. But honestly, there wasn't that much news about how much it was affecting the restaurants, right? So you you had you know, similarly, airlines and hotels, I feel like they, they were in the media a lot. They were talking about what is, you know, pandemic do, doing to them, how much their business have gone down. Our goal with the state of the industry um, dashboards was to show the media, to show the journalists, economists, how severely restaurants were being impacted by, by the lockdown. So initially, we just started out, you know, putting the consolidated numbers of how much the business has gone down in the restaurants. We provided this data at neighborhood level, state level, and the country level. And it really resonated with, uh, with folks. And I think, you know, we had economists, journalists looking at this. I think you have some of the stats. I think we got more than 20 billion news impressions on this data. Uh, but I think, you know, my goal, our team's goal was always to, to really you know, showcase or not showcase, or just bring it to people's attention how how badly the restaurants were impacted by by these. Yeah, and it is like a tale of two situations, two countries, two worlds. I was looking at your most recent data mid-April, right. and this is where you see in Australia, great in restaurant dining was over 200%. I'm guessing that was right. Easter year over year. Right. In the US, we're getting better. We're still down about 25% back 
you know, comparing to 2019, but you look at France and England and Germany still right. just really difficult. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. As an industry, we're set to deliver the most impactful, transformative work that's been done in the 30 years I've spent in this field. That's only possible because of the courageous work of data leaders like you, ready to push the envelope and embrace the art of the possible. It can be a tough road, one that requires a lot of grit, but you don't have to walk this road alone. You can get the new guide with the six rules on the Data Chief Hub to help you on this journey. Continue to tune in to the Data Chief for more inspiring stories and share your own lessons and best practices. We're all in this together. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, Give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. Join her on LinkedIn Live the first Thursday of each month for a live version of The Data Chief, where she'll share best practices and take your questions live. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. That's a wrap for this season of The Data Chief. We'll see you right here in 2023 with a new lineup of all-star data chiefs. Subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts to get notified when the new season launches. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.